yourself and the success of others. Can you do what they did? What I mean by that question is can you see yourself in success when you see the success of others? There's the classic well I can do that feeling when we see something that someone else has had success with. My favorite is when we see that picture of the giant red dot in the modern art museum, you know, the one that sold for 2 million dollars and you say a red dot on a white canvas, I could do that. But here's the thing, you didn't the artist did and got paid. And that's really the lesson when we look and say, "Well, I can do that." We have to ask, "Well, why haven't you?" There's another side of the "well, I can do that" thing as well. There's the role model. Now, this is common for us in marketing and communications and business where we're looking for the case study, the template, the path. Just show me the map. Show me how somebody else did it and then I can just paint by the numbers. I can do exactly as they did and I'll be just as successful. But weirdly, oddly, it so rarely ends up the same as that great case study. The template almost always has to be modified to our needs. The map isn't quite right. And that leads us to the third and my favorite of the well I can do that. It's the essence of understanding how to look for our role models of innovation. When we're trying to do something new in our business for our families or for ourselves, we often look to those who have come before us as templates. The challenge is, just as I mentioned, we often look at the form. We want to devise an innovative marketing strategy, so we look to those who have innovated their marketing strategies. We can do that. We want to create an innovative design, so we look for those who have created an innovative product design. We can do that. Or even further, we look at those who have innovated a product design in our industry. We better be able to do that. Instead, we might turn to the essence rather than the form of the innovation as our role model. We might make a habit to look outside ourselves, our industry, or even our closest models in order to find the essence of their success in order to inspire a new thing that we can do. When we look outside ourselves for inspiration or maps to the new thing we want to try and accomplish, we really look outside ourselves. Here's the thing, you will find the new in the new. The things that we don't understand, haven't paid attention to or don't even know exists. And that's the theme of our show today, seeing ourselves in the success of others or seeing others and finding the success within ourselves. Let's understand the essence and paint our own big red dot. Let's do something new that we after we've succeeded someone else will say, "Well, I can do that." And now it's time for Joe and I to do that thing we do. Welcome to our little avowal of you can do that. You ready to find the others and find your success? Well then, let's roll. listening pleasure here's Polizzi and Rose PNR with this old marketing take it away boys
Hello, content marketers. This is Robert Rose, and welcome to episode number 167 of PNR's This Old Marketing, recorded Sunday, January 22nd, 2017. And with me, as always, is my co-host, my colleague, my friend, and the guy I aspire to be in content marketing, Mr. Joe Pulitzi. How are you, my friend? I'm doing fantastic today. That was very yeah. nice of you to say. Happy. Yeah. Uh, well, this is a happy Sunday for us. We sometimes record on Sunday because I'll be out in New York this week. But uh, That's right. Yeah, absolutely. I'm looking forward to uh, no, no major news this week, just low-key, no social media this week. Boy, wouldn't it be great? I, Wouldn't I, it be? I took a week. I, t- I took the week off of social media for the most part. That's... I did too. I, I consumed a lot and 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 um, uh, and then stopped like full stop on. Uh, it happened to be like Thursday. I thought you know, right around then is when I when I stopped looking at social media for a, a couple of days. And I was you know it was, it was a you know depend doesn't matter what side you're on. It was an interesting week, but I, I felt that the that the formula for success is Tito's. And tonic. That's what I. Yeah. Found. Well, that's a good. That's that's definitely a good formula. It's uh, definitely a good formula. Yeah, not not in massive quantities, but solid, uh, consistent quantities uh, is is kind of what I was going for, yeah. and it succeeded, frankly. And, uh, <laughs> and succeeded. <laughs> well, I spent I spent all day Friday in a winery up in Sonoma. Oh, how um, was that? It was wonderful. It was wonderful. First, the folks up at Jordan Winery are just lovely people. First of all, um, but second, we had a we had a really good day, really good productive day, and and thirdly, the winery up there is just spectacular. I mean, it's just a spectacular place to be. Um, you know, I mean, especially if you're a guy like me who enjoys his Cabernet. Oh, you're a, um, you're a wine you know. snob too. I mean, yeah, you absolutely. <laughs> well, I'm not a wine snob. I I I, I, I definitely <laughs> a connoisseur. I, I would I I like my wine, but I I would not call myself necessarily. I'm certainly not as educated as some that I know. But but I, we had a I had a really good day, and and it was a really nice way to focus on the business. You know, on the focus on the task at hand rather than. Um, the noise, um, both positive and negative, quite frankly, that was that was getting generated. And uh, you you stayed overnight there, did the whole thing, did the tour. Favorite part? I did. Do you have a they favorite did. part? A favorite part would be so one of the things um, that they do there is they have uh, this hospitality as part of the tour, where they where they really because they're really big into pairing wine with food, which of course is a wonderful thing. And they have a chef on staff, and they have a whole kitchen, and so they bring in all these wonderful things to pair with the various vintages of Cabernet. And you have Chardonnay too, by the way. They make two wines a chardonnay and a cabernet and um and so and, and but primarily we 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 tasted the different uh cabernets which is their main wine and um paired them with all the these just amazing food creations and it was just a a wonderful way to spend like an hour and a half just tasting all these homemade cheeses from the Sonoma oh, County nice. and from, you know, fresh made pastries and, you know, truffle and, and just, it was, it was, it was pretty incredible. That was my favorite part. No, uh, no Merlot. No, they have two wines. They have a Chardonnay that's and they it. have a Cabernet and that's it. Yep. I always think of Merlot because of the movie Sideways. <laughs> Where Paul Giamatti's right. like, yeah, he just exactly. rages against the Merlot. <laughs> yeah. That's right. That's right. So, rightfully yeah, done. Uh, did uh, how was? I know we had uh, you know big political news last week, but did we have 
like regular news, like we did. News? It was a slow news week, um, basically because of the eclipse by um, the uh, the new president. Um, um, but we do have news to talk about, oh, and fantastic. Um, yeah, so let's open it up with our top story of the show here, which we're going to pair two stories together here, both of them coincidentally from uh, AdAge.com. And the first is a video that we'll link to in the show notes called The Battle for Custom Content, which is a video that shows some of the folks from the uh, T-Brand Studios and New York Times talking about the new battle on the on the horizon or really at hand between publishers, agencies, and brands where agencies are discovering that publishers are now the competition. Publishers are now discovering that brands are the competition. And as the video talks about basically this, uh, what I really liked about it was this video where he was talking about the, the new not being around the um, agency, the traditional agency, but around being the creative shop, right? Those who are most creative will win in this future. And we'll pair it with this other article from AdAge, which is about publishers acquiring marketing agencies at unprecedented rates. We've talked about that before, but this is another article in that Um series here, which opens up by saying publishers acquiring agencies was perhaps the biggest trend to come out of 2016, according to global marketing consultancy R3's annual M&A report, which specifically looks at deals made in the marketing sector. Publishers are looking at different ways to extend their revenue stream, said Yu Tang, consultant at R3, and we see this trend continuing. This year, we saw a lot of publishers struggling with generating revenue. But if you're a good publisher, you service both your audience and also your advertisers. Those who can combine the two the best are the ones who are going to survive. So taking these two things together, Joe, what did you think coming from the publishing world as you do? Well, I mean... the. These are things that you and I have been talking about for five years. Right. Uh, it's so good it's that Addy just capping up. Yeah, yeah, they're catching it's not, up. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't want to be negative about it. I'm glad they're covering it, but I'm like, gee, why? What took you so long? I mean, come on, to get uh, get with the get with the program. Anyways, good for them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the uh, I do have to tell you that agencies right now, if they don't understand. That having an audience is critical for their survival. Uh, I don't know where they've been because th- th- this video is really good. Anybody should watch this. It's a two minute video. Uh, go ahead and watch it. And the, the these publishing um, the, the T Brand Studios of the world, and I forgot what the other one was on there that was in the movie, uh, Robert. But you know, talk about how it's it's almost a non starter if an agency goes into a pitch today and they don't have an audience. What what I really thought was funny is the guy from T Brand says is um you know is a publishing company going to be the AOR for you know Facebook or Coca-Cola right, or, or whatever Coca-Cola, he says. Yeah. Yeah. He says no not this year but in 5 to 10 years. 5 to 10 yeah, years. I so yeah. I thought that was interesting and totally you know agree with that. I think it's right on the money. Yeah, I think you know I mean I think and you know I've said this in rants and you and I have talked about this on this show where we've said multiple times if agencies don't figure this out and by the way, I had a discussion with an agency just last week. Uh, you know, a large, uh, a large New York, Madison Avenue agency, and talked to some of their senior executives about content marketing, and they still look at it purely as branded content and campaigns and a way to do 
interesting things. Like, you know, when I talk to them about content marketing, all they want to talk about is, you know, Johnny Walker's Gentleman's Agreement or yeah. Dove's Campaign for a Real Beauty or basically storytelling and advertising. A different and kind talk, of advertising. That's yeah, it. and they talk about yeah. it as a different kind of advertising. They're not talking about it in the scheme of building an audience. And when I start talking like that, they go, huh. They don't... It, it's it's as if they really just can't get their minds around the concept of this and i think you know to to your point that you made at the top of the show which is you know wow it's nice that they're finally covering this i wonder if they're just starting to get their heads around what this really mean the implications of what this really means i mean this publishers are really doing this i mean this is not just this isn't fake news this is actually really happening and so if agencies don't figure this out and 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 you know and start to react to this so the the one thing and i've been of course i've been reading this book by tim ferris called tools of titans <laughs> i have to yeah, talk right, about exactly. it again yes. but there's this whole section of the book that talks about incremental success versus 10x success. So like the types of things where you've got Elon Musk, you know, launching Tesla and doing these moonshots. And I think what what I when I was reading this, when I was seeing this, I think the agencies are focusing on this incremental success, kind of like the oh, we're going to take the content, we're going to make the advertising a little bit better. It's going to be great, wonderful. And then you've got this 10x success, which is what I think you and I have been talking about, of course, talking about, hey, we're going to build these audiences and, and the, the power of these audiences are going to transform the business entirely by doing it that way instead of these you know, little campaigns and just fluffy storytelling. And right. what, what I thought was interesting was when you t- were telling me about this agency that you met with, that they thought that it was... I guess the better way to put it, just harder than it actually is to purchase an audience. Can you That's talk right. about that a little bit? Because I think yeah, it's important I, because you and I, we're going, like, when we talk to even brands believe this and agencies are believing this, and it's just a misnomer. It's completely a falsehood. And, if, and I don't know what's perpetuated this belief that it's hard to do this, but apparently it's a belief that's out there and it's and it's relevant in New York. It really is. I mean, they, you know, they look at it, you know, I mean, look, we, you know, our, our, this old marketing uh, example this week will prove this out, but brands, as we've said for a long time, have been buying audiences um, and buying access to audiences forever. Um, In traditional advertising, we're renting that audience. We are renting the audience from the media company itself. And publishers have recognized that one way around that is to buy the audience directly, right? So this is the classic soap opera, right? So, you know, Procter and & Gamble and, and other soap companies a million years ago bought media, bought the act and produced and created the media because quite frankly, the content didn't exist. So they said, well, we'll fund the creation of the content too. And then we'll take all of the advertising around Around that as an exclusive. And so we create the content and then we create all the advertising around the content. And isn't that wonderful? And that's been around forever. And so the interesting thing these days is, is that there seems to be a perception out there that going out and the creating of that content or acquisition of that audience is somehow infinitely more expensive than it really is. There's this perception that buying a media company or a small blog or a magazine or a publishing company is somehow 
really super expensive because media companies are expensive and they're not. They're not that in this. Now, they're, I don't mean to su- suggest that media companies are undervalued or cheap. What I mean to say is, is that in the context of what media or of what brands are spending in media buys, in other words, how much they're spending to access an audience, actually spending that money or some portion of that money to acquire that audience can sometimes be much, much cheaper. And once you have them, repeatedly then accessing them becomes a much... So don't think about it in terms of, well, how much is it to run a 30-second spot and reach them one time versus how much is it to buy the audience? Well, of course, you know, buying the apartment is much more expensive than renting the apartment for one month. But if you buy the apartment, then you get to rent it out or live in it or basically... Uh, subsidize or not subsidize basically um, uh, spread out those costs over long periods of time and that's the difference it's a difference in looking at an audience that is subscribed to a media property and saying we're going to acquire the whole media property and become the exclusive advertising platform and the exclusive support of that content forever that's the difference and it's cheap it is cheap 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 well it's just interesting that all right it seems that this whole publishers buying agencies and agencies buying publishers thing maybe that's coming to fruition okay so this obviously this article says that 2016 was the year that publishers snapped up marketing agencies at an unprecedented rate i didn't know that was the thing but hey great because we've been talking about it wonderful so i mean does that mean that 2017 18 is the year that brands really get into this mix or do you think that there's something in the way, is there some block that's happening? What, uh, well, there's definitely, yeah, well, there's definitely a block. I mean, whether or not we get through that, I mean, you've heard me say this a million times in the workshop, right? We're working our way through this wall of anxiety, yeah. which is convincing the powers that be, because quite frankly, and this is a challenge with marketing more broadly, marketing is still just working its way. You know, it's sort of, you know, when you when you sit down at a big crowded table and you have to sort of, the you know, chairs are so close, you have to sort of scooch up, you know, you scooch, 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 and you have to scooch up to the table. Well, that's what marketing's right now doing at the strategic table, right? Marketing has been so long away from the st- strategy table, and now all of a sudden the CMO is now scooch, 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 scooching its way up into the strategy table. And... The first thing out of marketing's mouth is, okay, we're going to go acquire a media company. And people are going, yeah, no, we're not going to be doing that. And and so that cultural sort of idea of actually becoming the media is such a weird and strange and odd and innovative thing that right now what you're seeing is the weird and odd and innovative companies doing this. You know, it's no surprise that the companies that were on the leading edge of innovation in advertising, the Crafts and Fords and GEs and, you know, um, other companies like that, Ikea and Lego and all these companies are on the forefront of this because they're the ones who are sort of innovating in the past and they're innovating now and they're actually taking these risks. And so... I think it's going to take some time and and the real innovators are the ones that are going to push their way through that wall of anxiety and come out on the other side. Yeah, I agree. It's going to take some time, but it's just interesting. If you see the, if you look at the big media side, big publisher side, there are one, if not a number of people responsible for M&A mergers and acquisitions inside the publisher. It's a regular media role. I mean, it's uh, I, I worked at Penton. We work at UBM now. It's a regular role. 
that uh, large media companies have. I expect that role to happen on the marketing side at large enterprises as well. Obviously, large enterprises already have M&A people in the organization, but they don't have one specifically that sits on the strategic side of marketing. I believe that will happen, Um, whether that's three years or five years or whether it's going to happen in 2017. It should happen in 2017 because I do believe we're going to hit some of those huge uh, you know, whether that's Apple buying Disney or something like that, I don't know, but you're good. Right. But yes. that role, that role is necessary because the marketers that I talk to don't know anything about M&A. So it's hard right. for them to be confident in going to their superiors. Well, that's exactly it. Yeah. Whether I mean, they, a, they, yeah. Go ahead. I'm they sorry. just have the budget. They just have the budget for keeping the lights on and getting email right going right and getting a website up and running and you know this is this is the same team you know we're talking to the same teams that are spending you know on the b2c let's let's just talk about the b2c side for a second here this is the same team that'll spend five million dollars producing a commercial but then have to scrape the barrel for a video for twenty thousand dollars to put it on the front page of their website i mean that's just crazy that's insanity um, and that's because the budgets right now belong to the media department. On the B2B side, you've got tons of money going into technology, tons of money going into um, other and sales development and all of this kind of stuff, and very little money going into the content just trying to get, you know, it, you know they're trying to scrape together. I talked to one B2B organization the other day, and they were like, you know, they were trying to do this, the classic thing that you and I always rail on, which is they have one blog and they're addressing like eight audiences. Yeah. And I said, why don't you just launch another blog? And they're like, oh my God, you mean double our work? And I'm like, no, it's, it's like, no, no, think of that a little differently, right? Double, you know, basically having another WordPress instance isn't going to double your work. And in fact, it may save you time, but... Anyway, th- this is the mentality we're in, where we're where we're looking at the the. In many cases, marketing isn't thinking big enough, yeah. right? We're not thinking bigly here, right? We need to think. Uh, we need well, to think bigly. I was going through, and well, we can end up with this and go on to the next story. But I, sure. as I was doing some of the survey research as part of Content Marketing World to see what the attendees would want to get in, uh, you know, get want to see and sit through in the lectures in 2017. Sure, uh, a lot of the large enterprises, uh, the the marketers that were there in 2016, are requesting. I need more for small teams doing more with less less budget from yeah, like exactly right huge the i mean the largest companies in the world are requesting i need more doing more with less i'm like oh man this is sad this is just yeah, yeah it's gonna take a while to get to where we need to go but anyways exactly we're getting there we're moving exactly all right well let's move on to our next story then which is on the other side of the coin which is of course the publisher side and this is an article that comes to us courtesy of the Neiman Lab, and the headline here is, This is the New York Times Digital Path Forward. Um, the article opens up by saying, One thing is certain. The New York Times has gotten a lot better at publishing internal reports. In 2014, when a team of Times staffers created a raw, by corporate memo standards anyway, report on why the paper struggled to innovate, the full version had to be leaked out. 
Our summary of that report, the article uh, Neiman Lab says, remains the most popular thing that Neiman Lab has ever published. Then, 17 months later, our Path Forward memo, the memo that comes from the Times leadership, served as the debut of the paper's stated goal to double, that's right, double digital revenue by 2020. And this time, the report was released publicly, albeit as a boring old PDF. Now today, 15 months later, this is 2017 now, the Times released the journalism that stands apart, the report of the 2020 group, and it got the full multimedia treatment, big images and type and video and hosted in much the same way and under the same URL that one of its major interactive pieces would be. And so they're obviously taking this very seriously and moving toward their goal of doubling revenue. And they report, and this news item goes on to explain how they're going to do that. And I thought this was fascinating. What did you think? You know, I have a couple of these comments worth worth discussing. The the one thing that I first of all I love when New York Times puts these things out. I think it's really important, especially for anyone in the publishing industry. It's it's super interesting. It did say in there that the the leadership of the New York Times believes that subscriptions are the only way uh, to go forward with their journalistic ambitions. The subscription model. Sure. I, I the addressable audience, yeah. No, uh, yeah, but, but the, see, that's where I want to unpack that no. a little bit because it, right. they mean that uh, it seems like they mean direct subscription revenues when they say the subscription model is their only way out. That is that what is that what you got from it? Well, because, you know, I, uh, yes, it is what I got out of it. But there, you know, there's the. Well, yeah, you know, it's a really good question because I see them doing other things, right? I see them buying wire cutter, right? I see them uh, launching e-commerce. I see them launching T-Brand Studios. None of those are subscriber-based revenue generators. And so, uh, you know, it, when I see that, I see them doing the multiple lines of revenue and multiple lines of value for using their media brand to do that. And then they say something like this. So I think... I take it as what they're saying here is differentiating between the advertising model and the, and the paid, you know, sort of the paid media wall model. Well, I, I think that the fact that now here we sit in 2017 and they're driving more revenues from consumers than they are advertisers, that's big. I mean, that's that's right. That's, that's monumental. Right. Uh, that's been, I mean, that's <clears throat> that's a progression that's been happening for a long time. It's great to see that. But what I don't want to see is. I don't think you necessarily have to say our business model has to be reliant on the majority of revenues now coming from the subscription, not subscribers. I'm fine with saying subscribers. It's much and different. To, that's I much think different that's than what they mean, right? Okay. I think that's what they mean. I, I'm, I look, I'm giving pick, them the benefit of the pick, doubt here. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't quite pick that up, but there's a couple things that... So there, there's one part where if you read this report, they say we want more journalists who can code. Uh, things like if you go, really go through this report, they're looking for <laughs> right. content creators that are really good visually, that are that are amazing coders, that can do everything. I don't know a lot of content creators that can do yeah. everything immensely well. Um, I think it's okay that you have some some coding experts and some visual experts on your team and that team together makes that work i mean do, do, am i wrong with that uh, <laughs> no, i think you're i think you're um you know i, I don't know I, any journalist that can code <laughs> I, I, 
<laughs> I mean, <laughs> nor do we want, nor do we want them to be able to do that. Yeah, it's like I just can't imagine some of the more you know famous New York Times journalists. I can't picture them at their desk going. Uh, I need to open up Photoshop and get this image just right. Yeah, exactly. To, you know, to get that thing. Or, uh, can I get that third bullet? Uh, the HTML just isn't cooperating with me today. I just don't, I don't see that happening, right? I, you know, it's... Yeah. So that's yeah, that's I'd, the one. Yeah, that's the one area that that the expectations of what a content creator should and could should be and could do. That's that's something I question on it. But the one was interesting is they the New York Times publishes 200 pieces per day. And the conversation around that was we need to make sure that what comes out of the New York Times is truly differentiated. Now that I love, obviously, right? Because they, they're like, there's a lot of news organizations out there covering this information, and they're saying they need to be differentiated. It's very tough to do that when you're creating 200 different uh, stories. And then, right. then they're saying they need to rethink the way they do their features and their different departments, which I totally agree with. And it's almost like – and they sort of hint to this. They don't go all the way into it, but they – almost like you just said with uh, – with the the blog that covers the eight different places, uh, it, well, why don't you just say why don't you create a different blog or a different sub brand? I think that's right, where exactly. the New York. I think that's where the New York Times is going to head. I think they're going to say, look, maybe the two hundred pieces of content don't come just from the New York Times brand. Maybe it comes from Wirecutter. Maybe it comes from this place and that place. And you have the New York Times, if you will, becomes a, a suite of fifty to a hundred to two hundred brands just like a trade media company would in a lot of cases i think that's where you're headed because you can't the new york times i don't think can be differentiated and be amazing at all those 200 articles but they could be amazing and differentiated at 100 and you've got another 100 to 200 that are often different sub brands where you have people that are in the trenches just focusing on that niche i think you're right i think that's exactly right i mean and when I look at what they do rather than what they may be saying here, I see them doing that. You know, I mean, I mean, we, you know, we've 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 talked about this on the show before, right? The percentage of revenue that's now coming from uh, digital, what they're calling digital services, or the T brand studios and and those places, you know, it's it's approaching what is it, eighteen or nineteen percent of their total revenue, um, and that's that's a meaningful number and has nothing to do with advertising or subscription yep. models, True. right? It's it has everything to do with subscribers and being able to reach that audience and being able to address that audience because that's their power. And it also has everything to do with the power of the brand of the New York Times as trusted source, which is the other thing that I really love that they talked about, which is how much they're going to be investing in the sort of the truth and sort of the ability for them to sort of rise above all of the what's going on in the mainstream media now. And that becomes the most valuable part of your, you know, your strategy is how well respected and how much trust you have in the audience you ha- you've, you've, you know, you've built. Absolutely. The one, the one um, I don't know if you picked this up, but they talk about how they cover certain areas like food really well. But some in technology, it's it's not very differentiated. They cover a lot sure. of the same stories as somebody else's does. Now, there's a really good if, – if you have the New York Times covering broad technology, I don't know how any entity can cover technology. That's so I mean, right. But that's where a yeah. lot of our that's where a lot of our readers get into trouble because they're 
content niche is too broad. And I think New York Times runs into this area. They would be better off subbing down into eight to 10 sub brands where they want to cover artificial intelligence or AR, VR or content sure, or marketing cons- or whatever. Yeah, or consumer right? tech, right? Yeah. You know, they've got, you know, and that, you know, and to your point, you know, buying the wire cutter is exactly along those lines, right? Wire cutter becomes a sub brand underneath the, uh, underneath the New York well, Times and covers all the geeky gadget stuff that, you know, that they do. And then, well, I think that then the next, then they have to take the next step, in my opinion, which, you know, who, who am I? I don't work for the New York Times, but I would say, what if they, <laughs> what, if, what if they then freed up their journalists not to talk about technology from the New York Times perspective? And that is under a, a different group to talk about those things. And then the New York Times has a different focus to really go in deeper with that audience and oh, be that's that a great different. Point. So it's that's a great point. That's what yeah. I'm thinking is it's you almost use like you say, with with those out uh, outer rims of content, you make a decision. You say, "Look, we're either going to go all in, and if we do that, it's probably with a sub brand with a dedicated team, or we don't do it anymore." Yeah, that, that's no. that's my that's my take. So yeah, no, it's a good one. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Anyway, a fascinating read, um, and um, <clears throat> and an interesting look. I think you know of all of the companies out there i mean you know that are that are that are trying to innovate in this space the new york times is is certainly hats off to them yeah yeah, one of the more interesting ones they're willing to share what they're doing and they're stumbling and they're flailing around sometimes but in other ways they're one of the most innovative companies out there because they're they're doing stuff that nobody else is and that's a really that you know big hats off to them well put it okay put it into context with the first articles we just covered and say exactly well in 10 years could the new york times be the agency of record for Procter and Gamble. Yeah. yeah. And the answer and the, is maybe. May, <laughs> maybe. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe. Yeah. Just, just maybe. maybe. Yeah. Anyway, we, you know what we have to talk about? We have to talk about for the second week in a row our new sponsor. Oh, it's, it's just an right. absolutely amazing, wonderful thing. You brought it up just on time. That, that, I that's, did. That's perfect. Our special thanks to our wonderful sponsor this week, Presley. And Presley wants us to talk about uh, sales enablement. And uh, Robert, you know this. It's no secret that sales and marketing departments have a complex relationship, to say the least, right? (laughs) Yes, I think that's true. Each have entirely different objects, workflows, and methods of measuring performance. That we know as well. But these departments also share the same essential need. Both require the right content at the right time in order to do their jobs. That is so true. Presley's Starter's Guide to Sales Enablement dives into how you can align sales and marketing and start building conversion-focused content today. It's a great piece. It's the Starter's Guide to Sales Enablement. You can find it at cmi.media slash pnr167. That's cmi.media slash pnr167. Or, of course, go to thisoldmarketing.com and check it out. Special thanks to our good friends at Presley for getting on board with the This Old Marketing podcast. We certainly appreciate it. And if you get a chance, go out. If you if you got it, and by the way, there are a lot of our listeners and readers that are having major integration challenge challenges with sales right now. This is a really good guide to pick up. That's if that's exactly you, right. pick this up. It's a great place to start. Download it today. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a great piece, and I can tell you it's a very timely piece because of the Companies that I've visited with thus far in 2017, every single one of them have had this challenge, which is different expectations, different integration issues, and integration is the the key there, right? 
who, you know, one of the, it's like, who owns the customer journey? Well, nobody owns the customer journey. You have to, it has to be an integrated approach. There's, you know, having one person do it is not tenable. Having one department do it is not tenable. But of course, not having it integrated makes it siloed and different and horrible. So you've got to, you've got the integration is is a key thing. If sales doesn't know what marketing is doing and marketing doesn't know what sales is doing, then it's not a, it's not a friendly place. Sounds like most of the companies you go see. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, it does indeed. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it is now time for your favorite part of the show. It is time for our rants and rave sections where Joe and I go off on a little bit of a rant or a little bit of a rave over something that makes us feel like we followed the right role model or something that makes us feel like we're following, I don't know, somebody that's a big old fat failure. Um, And let's see, I have this old marketing, uh, so I am going first. Um, this week. And so here's the thing. I have a small rave. Um, not that the rave itself is small, but it's short. Um, and then I'm going to save my commentary a bit, um, for the, this old marketing, because I have some questions for you, Joe, and I want to, I want to get your take on this because this old marketing example, while really great, I think is maybe missing a huge opportunity here, but we'll see. Um, so my my short rave, um, and again, it's not uh, that it's a smaller rave because I'm actually really, really um, pleased with it, has to do uh, this article that we'll link to in the show notes comes from Adweek, actually. And so, you know, we just spent the first part of this show talking and, and, and doing a little bit of ranting about how the Madison Avenue agencies haven't gotten this. But here we are, Adweek, that specializes in this. There's a wonderful article that I want you to read. And Adam Kleinberg, who I've read for a while, he posts quite frequently on Adweek and other places. Um, and he's an ad agency guy, right? He's, he's, he mostly posts on ad agency issues. And he actually wrote an article this week, this just this last week um, in Adweek called It's Time Marketers Rethink Their Commitment to Content um, by Using Their Time and Energy Wisely. And the article is just great. I, it's, I, I really, really liked it because, Joe, it was basically – your keynote at Content Marketing World, um, basically done in a in an ad week article, and hopefully this is a nice step toward educating that community into what's going on with content and content marketing. They say nice things about our numbers. They refer he references our research, um, and he really talks about these ideas of uh, commitment. And he says one is commitment to insight, right? Really getting the insight into why you're doing content and figuring out how it's resonating with your audience. Two, commitment to patience, having patience to be able to look at this for the long run, not just looking at it as a campaign or uh, you know, only you know, a revenue driver, but actually having the patience to look at the long-term brand building that creates the equity with the content and the brand. And then he talks about a commitment to working differently, which is actually saying, you know, it, basically looking at the way that you work with content and thinking about it from a different work solution, right? That different work stream that you're normally used to looking at. And then finally, the commitment to activation, really just activating audiences um, and, and, and and basically not starting out every conversation with, well, I need a piece of content for some internal goal, right? Basically looking at the activation of the customer, the delivery of value to the customer um, as the sort of major goal here. Um, and 
as he, I love the fact that he quotes Lincoln at the end of this and he says, your own resolution to succeed is more important than any other one thing. Commitment matters a lot. Um, and I just, it was a great article. So I just wanted to rave about it and recommend it. I just thought it was really good. I'm, I'm, um, I'm actually, I'm, I'm crying a little. Is this, yeah. I'm just, I gotta <laughs> tell you. I, you don't usually see these types of pieces in the ad weeks and the ad ages you of the world, but thank you, don't, you ad which week. is why, yeah, I wanted to rant, yeah. r- rave about it. Um, and Adam Kleinberg's a, a smart guy. He's a CEO of a company called Traction, um, which is in San Francisco. So, um, yeah, so there's my rave. And I'll save my other little commentary for later when we do the This Old Marketing. So how about you? Very good, very good. So um, so I, I'll, I'm going to tell you a little story. So I... I Went on my Saturday run. I got to tell you, by the way, it it's sixty degrees here in Cleveland, Ohio, right now. Yeah, which, it's fifty degrees and raining here in Los oh Angeles. Oh my gosh, it is pouring rain. So we record this on Sunday. Yesterday was Saturday, and I said I'm going out on a run today. It ended up being like sixty five degrees. Wonderful. So I'm going out on my run. Thank you know, thank goodness there's no snow. It's not cold, and I loaded up, of course, the the latest episode of the Tim Ferriss Show, uh, which is my flavor of the month that I've been into. And okay. he's featuring Arnold Schwarzenegger. Now, so before you laugh at any of Arnold's musings, you need to know that, you know, the guy is incredibly intelligent in a num- number of areas. And one of the key areas is about the environment and climate change. And you know this as governor of California. You know, you're from California. He pushed hard to, to make a lot of improvements in California's green efforts. And now the economy in California is actually, I didn't know this, is growing at twice the national rate in a lot of cases because of the growth of a lot of innovative green businesses going on in California. So it's it's just interesting. I didn't know a lot of that. But on the show, he talked about how the communication efforts behind uh, the climate crisis, he's just really upset about. And, and he while he lauded the environmentalists and their importance and, and passion for the cause, he actually used the word lousy. He said that almost all environments are lousy at communication skills. And so what I went and I, I took some of the content here, Robert, from the podcast because I thought it was interesting and I'll make a point here. So he says, they are, they always keep talking about climate change. It doesn't matter what speech that you listen to. They talk about climate change. It doesn't mean anything. <laughs> right. He says it doesn't mean anything to the masses of the world. It goes right over their heads. They talk about something that happens in 10 or 20 years from now and sea levels rising in 50 years. But he says the human mind is not equipped to think about what happens down the line. They want to know what's happening today and what's happening right now is disastrous. This is what I didn't know. He says, that's what the environmentalists should be talking about. Pollution is killing 7 million people a year, period. He says, that is happening right now. And he says that all the environmentalists and the talk and the narrative around that is things that are happening years from now, and they don't talk about the damage that's going on right now. So hold that thought. And then then just recently, uh, last week as well, I had this interview on this podcast for entrepreneurs. And the host was asking me, he says, Joe, how did you do it? How did you help create this movement around content marketing? And I told this story, and a lot of our listeners know this, but it's worth repeating for this uh, purpose. So basically, I said, the movement was already there. I said, the movement was happening in content marketing, but the trade media was ta- were talking in terms using branded content, custom media. An article we just talked about was custom content, custom publishing, and I said, for whatever reason, this didn't excite anyone, particularly chief marketing officers. You know, those, those, <laughs> those terms were not essential terms for marketing leaders. Now, all we did at CMI was, uh, you know, was call 
something that screamed relevance for marketing leaders. And we called it, you know, we just took content and added marketing to it. You know, that's really right. all, all we did. And then we talked about it like the term had always existed. You know, now here we are today. So the, what those two things, Robert, kind of coming together, um, thought about maybe people out there are talking about the content that's important to their audience, but they're missing a little bit. You know, maybe we're not talking in a language that provides a catalyst for change. Maybe we're using the wrong words. So if we go, okay. all right. You know, so if we go back, go back to Arnold Schwarzenegger's example. You know, he believes that the battle of climate change, whatever that term is, would completely turn if we focused on the pollution that's happening now. If we talk sure. about more of what's happening in Flint and other things, he thinks that's all it would take. He said it's a communication issue. That's the problem that's going on right now. And then look at us at CMI. You know, we could have done everything exactly the same, but I don't think we would have been successful if we would have called it custom publishing. Sure. We just changed the ter- nothing else is different. Just change that term. So it just got me thinking about, you know, we I think we we all need to. Everyone listening to this needs to ask the question: What? Let's look at our content mission. Let's look at our niche. And is there a way that we could reposition our content? To kind of going back to what we talked about before in the in the in the podcast, that not just incremental change, but that ten x type of change and effect on our audience. And it could be one or two very small things and. That's why I wanted to throw my rave out to Mr. Schwarzenegger because uh, I think that in a lot of cases, our audience, they're hitting the mark with the stories, but they're using the wrong words. Fascinating. That's a great one. I love that. I love that. How the use of words is really important and then the focus in on what, you know, what are we really, what's really going to activate an audience, right? Is it, is it talking this? I mean, what you could, you could easily take that same rant rave to the idea of thought leadership too, right? How how most B2B brands approach thought leadership is in sort of talking about this futuristic change in many cases that quite frankly doesn't really inspire the immediate change that they're trying to go for, right? It's like, oh, it's really interesting that um, one of the articles that we didn't talk about here on the show but is very popular these days is, you know, how artificial intelligence is going to change B2B marketing. And there's tons of thought leadership getting generated around that. It's like, that's really interesting, but that's 10 years from now, right? It's not, it's not going to inspire a change for your technology solution today. And so that's, it's, it's how can you make that apply to someone in the immediate and make it relevant for them mm-hmm. now? Well, yeah. th- well, I love that. That po- let's stay on that point for a second. You and I talked about this with Intelligent Content Conference in March. We're like, if we talk about in, uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning, let's talk about what you need to do right now. Exactly. Like, to prepare for that. Don't just exactly. think about oh, what it's going to be. Like, what That's do you right. have to do right now to keep your job? And That's to right. Do, like exactly. Right, like, how do you set up your metadata now to deal with this? And that's why, like, uh, like. You know, focusing on that because I think in the past we didn't do a good enough service to that, and I think now we're coming around to it. And we we hit it based on yeah. what you're talking about. So yeah, that's exactly right. Well, those are good. That's a good one. That's a really good one. So okay, well we're going to talk about a this old marketing. Yay! Um, yay! And so, did you watch the People's Choice Awards this this year, or do you watch it every um, year? 
I've watched it a few times. I I have not watched. I don't watch a lot of TV, so, uh, yeah. so I did right. not watch. Well, you didn't it this see. Year. You didn't see Justin Timberlake take the award for favorite male artist. Or oh, who would you? Who JT would you have, did. If yeah. I if yeah. I'd have known there JT, I'd have been yeah. there, man. <laughs> who who do you think took the award for favorite female artist? Uh, I was surprised by this one. Favorite Carrie Underwood. No, although she uh, she won for favorite female country artist. Oh, yeah, that's pretty close. They have, they have a lot of hierarchies here. In the People's <laughs> Choice Awards. They what have, was the favorite you know, female? Favorite female country artist over thirty, but not yet fifty, uh, but also drives a red Corvette. Yeah, that you know those kinds of things. Um, the, no, it was uh, Britney Spears actually. Britney Spears making a big comeback. What? I um, yeah, I, I guess so. Oh, I guess man. so. I didn't know she had a new album out. I mean, I know she yeah. was performing in Vegas, but I didn't. You know, that's favorite actor Ryan Reynolds. Um, yeah. Oh, I so, totally believe that with Deadpool. <clears throat> uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, of Absolutely. course, right. Yeah. So anyway, they have a lot of nominees, a lot of winners, a lot of awards, um, and the you know, and it's been around for a long time. What you may not know. Um, interestingly enough, about the People's Choice Awards, is that it is fully owned um, by Procter and Gamble, um, and has been a content marketing platform for Procter and Gamble uh, since nineteen. Uh, let's see, nineteen eighty-two. Procter and Gamble, the show's uh, at that point only sponsor, bought the entire show um, from the the guy who actually created it, who was a guy by the name of Bob Stivers, who had created uh, a bunch of other shows as well. Circus of the Stars. Remember Circus of the Stars? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So he created that show as well. It's fascinating. So he created the People's Choice Awards, and then Procter & Gamble has owned it since 1982. Um, so basically what they've done is they've purchased the entire show, the People's Choice Awards. They run it every year. And um, really, for as long as it's run, they are the only advertiser. So they have exclusive advertising. So all the advertising that you see on the People's Choice Awards are um, Procter & Gamble brands. So you'll see Tide and all the other sort of P&G brands that you might expect. They have sorted in the in the last couple of years to introduce um, some other non-competitive brands into the mix. Um, so it's really an interesting thing when we start looking at it, like you and I have talked about it before, where some content marketing platforms that can even start to draw in revenue. Well, here's P&G selling some of their own exclusive inventory, maybe for a higher rate, maybe for a lower rate, don't know. But basically, the whole idea is that they're actually now making some money themselves over selling the space, not necessarily having it only be a platform for their own advertising. Now, that's a wonderful thing, and and you know we've talked about PNG before with soap operas, and we've talked about other products that have had content marketing initiatives through the PNG family of of brands, and this is certainly a, a higher level PNG sort of effort here. Um, and what got me interested in this was that so I had heard about the television show being owned, and I went, huh, I wonder what's going on in digital. This is where I go into my little bit of a commentary or a rant, and would love to get your your take on this. So I go look at the digital. Uh, channel for this. And so if you go to peopleschoice.com, it's a wonderful website. It's an editorial website. Um, and it is basically a 24-7, 365 
uh, sort of editorial, selling advertising. It got articles not only about the awards themselves, but sort of a content hub for everything around pop culture and music and acting and TV and films and all these wonderful things. And they've got polls and surveys and, you know, and you can subscribe and all this wonderful stuff. You can become a member of the People's Choice. And, and basically, assumably, I don't know how big an audience they have, but assumably they have some sizable audience. And there's advertising there. Here's the thing. When I look at this, and I, I browsed through peopleschoice.com a fair amount here, I couldn't find one P&G ad. I couldn't find one thing mentioning and or even making reference to P&G. Now, it's not that they're not selling advertising because there's an enterprise. I'm looking right now at an enterprise car rental ad. I'm looking at a Hilton ad. I'm looking at sponsored content that, based on some of our other previous conversations, they might not even want to be running on this site. You know, there's some eh, sketchy sum of sponsored content here um, talking about, you know, some of the stuff that we've talked about before and the challenges with sponsored content. And, um, you know, 13 celebrities who get unrecognizable after plastic surgery. Um, so you look at that and I go, wow, what's, that's fascinating. So I go look and it seems, as per the research that you and I did just a little bit before the show started, that the mobile, social, and web experiences are actually owned by the company that P&G outsources the production of the show to, which is, of course, Mark Burnett and Hearst Integrated Media. And one of their companies, which is a company called One Three Digital, actually seems to have the ownership over the web, um, the web channel here, the website. I don't know all the ins and outs here, but my little commentary here, and then I would love to get your take here, is that this is a huge missed opportunity for P&G to not take advantage of this media as digital has become the thing to not integrate what they're doing on the television side with what they're doing in digital to actually take advantage of this, um, this audience. And quite frankly, the, the 24 seven, 365 nature of this award show. Now, maybe they're getting a revenue cut here. Maybe this, you know, they get some revenue out of this and that's a great thing, but it seems to me to be a very much a missed marketing opportunity here. What do you think? No, I would have to agree with that. I mean, just looking at the, the calls to action and I mean, no, nothing wrong with Google advertising, but they're, they're just serving up, you know, Google ads up here. Right. That, that exactly. are running. I mean, I'm looking at enterprise and a subway foot long, which by the way, looks really good. But <laughs> yeah, I don't think that this is what they want to necessarily associate it with. Um, that, and it's not with the PNG brand at all, but what if it was? I think that's, that's right. your point that's, is, and maybe they maybe they need to unhide themselves from this, and and but it's for sure. Let's just say they do nothing else that's different with the people Cho- people's choice awards. which seems like a great opportunity and great idea at the time. Maybe still is. There's no integration here with this online property at all. No, so I I just make the decision. I'm I would almost just say, look, if we're gonna do this and we really believe this is a thing, let's build our audience on this channel because. Uh, there's not a lot of calls to action for audience building here. Exactly, and you know, and 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 just you know, to that point, I have to imagine that at some point, the web digital aspect of this is going to start to take precedence over the yearly show, right? I mean, to keep this relevant to the show and to the brand that they've created, the People's Choice Awards and everything they're doing, the opportunity here to turn people's choice into, especially today, into a pulp, a pop culture hub 
of everything that it's all about. And then, oh, yes, we also have an award show. I mean, there's a, I mean, and maybe, and look, I want to be really clear. They, these conversations may have been had 9 million times and they're all sitting around. And if somebody forwards them this podcast, they're going, yeah, right. We've been talking about this forever. Welcome to our personal hell. But, you know, so they maybe have thought about this and made all sorts of decisions. But to me, this feels like such a missed opportunity for, for P and G to really make this into a thing, right. To make people's choice and the people's choice awards into, you know, a completely relevant totally relevant pop culture icon that you know uh, that it could be to to your point they might have had the conversation but just look at you've got the website you've got the facebook site that has 1.8 million people following it on the on the uh, on the facebook page you've got you've got millions on twitter you've got i mean look at the assets that you have i'm i don't know if they're building those assets if those are png assets but they should be because but it looks like they're being sub-licensed out and we're we don't know all i mean we're it's conjecture at this point, but I I think you're right. I would take another look at this because there could be something really really big here if we if we to your point before committed to it, put some focus against it. So that's right, that's right. Yeah. So anyway, so that's the this old marketing. So it's been I mean, so People's Choice Awards has been around since 19. I mean, has been around longer than that. It's been around since the the the, the late 70s, and then in 1982 it was purchased by PNG and has now become a platform for them. So it's a wonderful example of this old marketing, and one that's probably due <laughs> with the advice of Joe and Robert for an update and a new integration. Yeah, well, or we'd like to know. Send us a note. We yeah. would love to know what's going on with that. So yeah. there you go. So um, so you're in New York this week. I'm in New York a couple days this week uh, going to the UBM offices. I've got a couple meetings uh, with the with the team. We've got the sales team coming in New York. So, uh, so that'll be fun seeing everyone. And uh, are you uh, – I know you were traveling last week. Are you back in I the am home. this week? I am home this week. Yeah, I am home this week and next. And the, the, the word is heads down. I have so much writing to do. It is, it, is, it is really unbelievable how much writing I have to do. Not only our book that we continue to work on, but just – so much to get ready for intelligent content and some client stuff and a couple of conferences that I'll be speaking at and just a lot of I'm I'm, I'm going to be taking advantage of the fact that it's raining here in LA and just be heads down um, putting words onto the screen as it were. Well, while I'm in Manhattan, you make sure you you write and do your thing. So I will. I will, <laughs> I will right. boss. Okay, that is it for Joe Polizzi. This is Robert Rose. We are signing off. And if you like this episode, number 167, won't you consider leaving us a kind review on iTunes? We do love those kind reviews. And if you haven't yet, do consider subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher.com or your favorite podcatcher. And if you leave us a review or you subscribe, let us know. Won't you hashtag us up at This Old Marketing? We love that little hashtag on the Twitter. Um, And story ideas. We love those story ideas as well. Hashtag us also up on the Twitter with This Old Marketing. We'd love to get those story ideas and the examples of This Old Marketing into our little feed there. Or, you know, you can always send in email this old marketing at contentinstitute.com all the links that we talked about today will be available in the show notes that are available on the show as we publish monday night and then of course in our wonderful show post that appears at content marketing institute on saturdays until next week everybody remember it's your story to tell tell it well see you next week on this old marketing
This show is part of the CMI Podcast Network. Check out all of our shows at contentmarketinginstitute.com.